You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 on Instagram with two Bs, and I would love to see you there, where you can both suggest questions and guests for future episodes. And speaking of episodes, I mean, my word, what an expert we have in store for you today, and I'm thrilled to welcome Brad Birnbaum, founder and CEO at Customer to the Hot Seat today. Customer is the first intelligent platform for customer experience that enables you to know everything about every customer. And to date, Brad has raised over $38 million in funding for Customer from some of the very best in the SaaS business, including the wonderful Thomas Tungas at Redpoint, Ed Sim at Boldstart, Canaan Partners, Box Group, and Social Leverage, just to name a few. Previously, he was also the co-founder of Assistly, which was acquired by Salesforce and became Desk.com. Prior to that, he was CTO for Talisma and co-founder and CTO of eShare Technologies. In addition, Brad was also the CTO at Sean Parker's Airtime and VP of Engineering with Salesforce. And I'd also want to say a huge thank you to the very wonderful Mr. Ed Sim at Boldstart for the intro to Brad today. I really do so appreciate that. Ed. However, before we dive in today, if you regularly listen to podcasts, you've heard of Betterment. They're the smart way to manage your money. They use cutting-edge technology to build you a personalized portfolio and provide you with fiduciary financial advice for one low transparent fee. But did you know that they can also provide your company with your 401k plan? We all know that choosing a 401k for your company can be a time-consuming and confusing process. With Betterment, it doesn't have to be though. Betterment for Business is a turnkey 401k solution that offers ease of use, personalized financial advice, advice and very competitive pricing. And that's why the likes of Compass, Casper and Harry's are just some of the companies that use Betterment's 401k to help further their employees' financial wellness. And you can find out more at betterment.com slash Sasta. That's betterment.com slash Sasta. And another incredible service is reviews.io, the first and only review platform to offer a truly unified Salesforce customer feedback management experience, enabling your business to save both time and money while monitoring and improving customer service and revenue. In addition to Salesforce integration. Reviews.io also announces competitor analysis. This powerful tool gives businesses updated review scores and history for their chosen competitors, allowing them to spot trends in customer sentiment and take really swift action. And collecting reviews for your business with Reviews.io, a Google-licensed review partner, improves online visibility, click-through rates, and conversion by introducing star ratings across paid and organic Google search results. And even better, Reviews.io integrates with over 30 online platforms. For your free product demo, sign up now at Reviews.io or search for reviews.io in the Salesforce app exchange and listeners get a free 30-day trial by simply mentioning the podcast when they sign up. Finally, we all know as a founder or operator, your crucial job is people operations. That could be hiring execs, developing managers, retaining top talent and building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies, helping the likes of Asana, Reddit and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure their top performers are happy. And check this out, Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive the offer. That's lattice.com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. However, you've suffered quite enough of these dulcet British tones, and so now I'm thrilled to hand over to Brad Bernbaum, founder and CEO at Customer. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up.
Well, Brad, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, having heard so many great things, both from Ed at Bold Start and Gary at Social Leverage. So thank you so much for joining me today, Brad. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to being on your show for quite a while. Well, that's very kind of you, but I'd love to kick off today with a little bit about you. So Customer is your fourth time building a customer service company, but I'd love to hear, how did you make your way originally into the world of SaaS? And then what was that founding story with Customer in a very succinct two to three minutes? I've been building customer service software since the mid-90s, had a, a bunch of great companies companies along the way. And in 2008, I found myself selling my last company and looking for something new. So I ended up working at AOL and running chat in 2008. And it was an interesting time to be at AOL. They were going through a lot of transformation there. And after being there a little while, I quickly realized that it wasn't for me as as I really like to build product. And we weren't able to do as much of that there as we could. So I was there with a couple of other folks that I've spent most of my career working with, Alex Barr, Gary Bennett, and Jeremy Suriel. We all decided to leave AOL at about the same time to do what we know and what we love, which is build customer service software. However, we said, we've been building enterprise on-prem software for our whole career. Why don't we try our hand at SaaS? Because the world was quickly going to SaaS and, and we saw the benefits of SaaS of not having to worry about databases and all the fun stuff around there, right? You know, you're on this version of Oracle. So we said, we're going to focus on SaaS. And at the time, I was doing a lot of traveling as an enterprise CTO for many years. And I just had my first daughter and I said to the guys, I said, I really don't want to uh, travel as much as I used to. Maybe we could try our hand at SMB because the sales cycles are very different. And that sounded like a great idea. So we ultimately formed a Sisley in 2009 to do SaaS-based SMB customer support. And it was a quick journey. It was 18 months from incorporation to acquisition term sheet from Salesforce. That product is now at Salesforce's desk.com. And it was a great ride. I spent three years at Salesforce, had a really good time. After my three-year journey at Salesforce is over, I went and um, worked at a different company called Airtime for a year, which was something out of my core domain, which was all about the next great social network. It was Sean Parker's company, or still is Sean Parker's company. The next great social network around group video, co-consuming media together. And it was a super lot of fun. I really had a great time, met a lot of great people there, but realized I needed to get back to my passion. And my passion was building customer service software. So Jeremy Sorrell and I, he was with me at our time. We left and ultimately founded customer. And the reason we did that is we just saw this really large opportunity in the market to do it right this time. We saw a lot of old school legacy players there. We saw a lot of point solutions and we saw an opportunity to build an amazing platform to enable next generation customer service. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you in terms of the opportunity there. I do have to ask before we dive in, you mentioned your time at Salesforce there. I'd love to hear, were there any big takeaways from the three years at Salesforce that you've maybe really taken with you to the operational mentality with customer today? Sure. No, there's a lot of takeaways. Salesforce is an amazing company. It's a great big company. One of the things that we definitely learned there is a lot of the secret sauce at Salesforce, and admittedly, it's not that secret, is in fact its platform. They started right in the very beginning building a platform. They didn't go to market with the platform. They went to market with their initial apps on top of the platform. But having that platform has enabled so much of the Salesforce success and the ecosystem to grow. And that was certainly one of the core takeaways. And the second one was a lot of its processes. So the V2 mom process at Salesforce, which is a management alignment process. When I first got there, I admittedly thought it was a little corny. But by the time I left, I I truly saw the value of it. And frankly, it's something we've implemented here at Customer. We we call them CUSTIs, which is key unit strategies to yield success. But it's it's an alignment process we use from the top down so that everybody is aligned at the executive level all the way down to the individual contributor level. 
So yeah, great time at Salesforce. I love those takeaways. It's it's always a, a fascinating thing. I do want to ask though, and start today on the theme that, that we touched on there, as we said, customer being your fourth company. We had Phil out from Safra on the show, and please forgive me for this. He said that being old in SaaS is a huge benefit. Obviously, you're very young, but when we chatted before, you said about the benefits of repeat entrepreneurship. So starting on that then, in your mind, what are the core benefits of, of really having done this rodeo before and, and it being such a trodden path, so to speak? Yeah, okay. well, listen, thanks for the uh, so young comment, but there is a lot of value in experienced entrepreneurs, right? I think a lot of venture capitalists see tremendous value in repeat entrepreneurs. But what are some of the benefits? So there's obviously the obvious, which is you know learning from past experiences, right? I've done this several times. We've had some good successes and, and a great journey along the way. So there's, there's really a lot of value in there. Deep knowledge in the contact center space. For maybe two years of my career, I've spent over 20 years in the contact center space back all the way into the mid nineties. And obviously continuing on now, and I've seen how it's evolved. I've seen the technology evolved. I've seen that the ways customers want to communicate, the tooling evolved. That deep knowledge has really helped us build a great product. Also, one of the core benefits I've learned is there's no shortcuts in building a product. Every time in the past when we would try and just hack something together, it would last a little while and then come crashing down. So learn that you, you've got to do it right. You've got to do it right. And it's easier to do it right nowadays than it used to be 20 years ago, but you've got to do it right. I'll tell you, it's easier to fundraise, admittedly. As I said earlier, VCs do appreciate repeat entrepreneurs. And when you've got a great product in a space with a really large TAM, I do think it is easier to fundraise. And you know, lastly, but certainly important, is, is uh, I've got a great network to pull talent from, right? I've, I've met a lot of people over the years across many interesting companies, and, and it's been super helpful here to build a customer. Can I ask, what do you think you've done differently, given the, the three prior past experiences that have really changed kind of how you operate today with customer and change how you really think about building a company today? Sure. So the first thing I'll tell you about customers is when uh, when Jeremy and I set out to, to build customer, we knew we had to go big. We wanted to build a massive company. That was a core part of our fundamental thinking in every decision we make around here. We want a company to last the ages. We're not looking for a quick hit. It's important that we build something that will have longevity and maybe even be a long-time legacy. So in doing that, there's a lot of things involved, right? We knew that we had to build a proper platform as opposed to a point solution or a quick and dirty app. And building a platform is a pretty time-consuming task, right? It takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot of time. So we knew that we wanted to go big, and we, we set ourselves up across the board to go big in every way. Secondly, we thought it was important to consumerize our product. You know, the contact center, call center software it definitely fills an amazing void, but it sometimes is accused of being, you know, boring and lifeless. And having spent that year at airtime working with Sean Parker and Daniel Klaus and some really amazing people, my core takeaway was I could take the best of building business software, but also take the best of what I learned building consumer software and smash them together. And there's no reason that customer service software has to be ugly and boring, right? There's no reason we can't take modern experiences and bring those onto the desktop. And lastly, one of our biggest takeaway that Jeremy had is we just have to build a product to scale from the beginning. Invest the time, do it right the first time, it will pay mass dividends. Can I ask, what advice would you have for founders, maybe younger founders, given your experience and knowledge building multiple companies? When founders come to me and say, hey, my investors want to see progress, they want to see product roadmaps being hit, and sometimes you have to do the quick and dirty to get there. What would you advise them? Say it was an angel investment of yours, when they feel the external pressure to maybe do the quicker and dirtier product iterations instead of the do it right, do it long term. Look, there's always a balance, right? And we have that balance here too, right? We have to be nimble. There's certain fundamental things you always have to do right. You always have to do it properly. You can't cut the corners. But at the same time, we're very nimble, right? Our roadmap is fluid. It's based on what we're seeing in the market, where we're seeing our customer trajectory going, the capabilities that we see them needing. So I think it's a hybrid, right? I think it's a hybrid of knowing the things that are critically important and you cannot sacrifice with bringing agility and a form of being nimble at the same time. Can I ask, what are the things that you can't sacrifice? 
Well, for us, we can't sacrifice trust. So trust is a term we actually picked up at our time at Salesforce. And trust is an embodying principle of everything from security to system uptime to do you trust the data, right? Is the data accurate if it's a report? And trust is one of our mantras around here at Customer. It's something that we have a trust team, actually. We have a dedicated trust team right now. And it's something that you probably will hear us say 50 times a day around here. And the reason is if your customers don't trust you, if they don't trust your data, if they don't think your data is safe, if they don't think it's secure, they won't want to do business with you. You will not continue. So trust is just one of those core mantras we took away. And it's something that we just don't cut corners on. No, I love that. And I've never heard of a dedicated trust team. I think that's absolutely awesome. I do have to also, I chatted to Ed and Gary before the episode, and they mentioned you're being CTO for much of your career. So how have you found the transition then from CTO to CEO? And have there been some particularly challenging elements? Yeah. So first off, I would say I'm really enjoying taking on my expanded role as CEO. It is the first time. And you know, like anything new, I had a, I had a little apprehension, but I have a great support system. I've got great investors, advisors, a great board. And you know, I knew I would be up to the task. I'll tell you my role as CEO has evolved. And in the first 18 months, we were very, very heads down building product. It took us a, a little while to really get our product out there. And there's a lot of focus on there. So first 18 months, very heads down on, on helping the product team. I am an engineer by trade. So I was even, even writing some code. But since then, I've really started to shift a lot of my focus and emphasis on scaling and operationalizing the business, right? That includes everything from helping the go-to-market team to helping be the brand and face of the company. It's even fundraising. So a lot of that has been the evolution of my CEO role. Can I ask, what have been the most challenging elements? So uh, it's funny. I just had a, a really good discussion with my life coach about this yesterday, but it's prioritizing my time. I find that my calendar is now always too full. There's too many things to do, too many meetings to take, and it's hard. It's hard to say no to things. So prioritizing my time has definitely been a challenge I've observed over maybe the last 30 days. And what I've been trying to figure out is, is there an anomaly going on or is that the new normal? And I think, unfortunately for me, I've realized that it's become the new normal and I'm trying to think through how I can optimize my time better. Yeah, no, I think that's a very difficult decision-making process. So I, I feel sympathy for you there. But I do have to ask then, kind of when you assess the landscape and having been a CTO and having a very baked out CTO network, where do you see many CTO turn CEOs maybe going potentially wrong? And is there any advice that you give them having gone through that process now with customer? Yeah, so we talk to a lot of companies in in ancillary spaces, sometimes companies you want to partner with, or, or frankly, even sometimes companies were exploring some type of M&A type activity. And I notice a pattern. I actually do definitely see the pattern that most of these companies that have CTOs turned CEOs that maybe aren't doing as well as, as they had hoped. When I peel back the onion and talk to them, they'll have a team of seven or 10 and they're all product people. And I'd say, well, how are you selling this? Like, where's your, what's your go-to-market strategy? Who's focusing on go-to-market? And it, it always is just the CTO turned CEO says, yeah, that, that's my responsibility. And I said, but you know, A, you've probably never done it before. And B, going to market's a, it's a hard thing. It's an important thing. And you need a really clear focus on it. And it's no wonder why maybe you, you haven't been as successful as you'd like. And I strongly encourage you to think about hiring some strong go-to-market leadership to help you out. So it's definitely one of the things that I've noticed. And one of the things that I think we've done pretty well here. I also sort of encourage them to kind of elevate themselves from the tech and, and focus on what they can do to help the company sell more product. We've seen that happen here, right? We've seen examples where you have to take yourself out of the day-to-day -day of, of the product side and, and really focus on what I could be doing to enable the company to be more successful. And that, that's been something I've had to transform myself on too. And, and as a product person, as an engineer, I'm always deferring to we could solve this through product. And that's not always the answer. 
right? I mean, you want to build the best product, and I think we have, but sometimes there are other answers, and it's not always only solved through product, right? You know, there are things you need to do in sales and marketing and, and customer experience, et cetera, to build that company and, and keep your customers happy. I'm so pleased you said about the go-to-market element there, because obviously we're going to touch on it, but I do have to, in terms of kind of the people behind it, I had a guest on the show the other day that said the founding team must always be the ones to really evolve and think about the go-to-market in the early days. If they don't have the experience, is this something then that you disagree with in terms of bringing in that external expertise? No, I think it's important. I think it's something that we did here at Customer, and I think was super helpful. I think you should never be too proud to, if something is not your core strength, to find something, somebody or, or a team to compliment you on there. So, no, I, I think that's critically important. And one of the things that, frankly, I wish we had done even sooner is really, really focus hard and heavily on, on go-to-market, even long, long before we had our product built. No, I love that. But as I said, from my chats with Ed, I know you initially focused on an SMB market with the, the self-serve approach, but now much more serving mid-market, which leads me to the question that all SaaS founders ask me, which is, should I start with SMBs, prove product market fit, and then move to enterprise or vice versa? I guess my initial question to you is, how would you respond to this question? Maybe imagine I'm an angel investment of yours. What advice would you give me? Yeah, well, look, first off, you have to be nimble and adjust, right? I'm, I'm not a fan of the word pivot. I don't care for that term, but you have to learn your lessons as you're building your company, as you're building your product, as you're scaling it, and, and figure out what works for you. In the case of, of us here at Customer, we thought we were going to do a lot of what we did at Assisly, where we were going to build a great product. It was going to be focusing on SMBs. You would be able to self-provision on the website, go into trial mode, you put your credit card in, and you're good to go. What we noticed after we started selling the product for about a quarter or two is that while we had a lot of SMB customers, they were very happy with the product, we were also getting a, a very large pipeline of mid-market to small enterprise customers. And you know the unit economics are admittedly a little stronger for those types of customers, right? They will tend to go to your higher pricing tier. They'll tend to take annual or, or in our case, multi-year contracts, frankly. And they're, they're far less afraid for paying larger services implementations. And I forget, we were at a board meeting and the board looked at us and they said, Brad, you know, you guys are doing well on the, on the SMB side, but you're also really showing promise on these mid-market to small enterprise com- customers in your pipeline. And you can, unit economics are much stronger for you. And, you know, you may want to think about focusing a little more heavily on that. And we thought about that for a little while after that board meeting and, and kind of realized that we should really start to focus on that. That's where most companies aspire to get to. It usually takes them a while to get there. To your point, they start SMB and go up. Well, we kind of realized that the product we built was so strong, was so robust, the platform enabled so much stuff to happen in your business that it was an even better fit for these mid-market to small enterprise customers. And we ultimately went down that path and, and started to make that transformational shift. Can I ask, in terms of that realization and going down that path, how did that affect your thinking around the entire go market approach and really kind of what needed to be changed as a result. Right. So one of the things we realized is we wanted to hire senior go-to-market leadership to solve that, right? So we know we needed leaders, to your point earlier, I, I needed leaders who can help elevate me, who are very strong at that market segment with domain expertise. And we hired leaders in sales and marketing to help us focus on that. We quickly turned off self-provisioning, which meant we weren't really enabling or allowing people to self-provision and set up the product as we were focusing towards a, a richer sales experience, a deeper sales experience. We turned off self-provisioning. We had um, an immediate focus on improving and upgrading and, and enhancing our CX and implementation teams as these larger customers require deeper implementations, deeper integrations. We started enhancing our sales team. We hired much more senior account executives, solutions consultants, sales enablement, changed our marketing strategy on how we were finding and acquiring customers, and really just changed the way we actually started doing business. So in the past, it was all simply automated payment through credit cards, but we quickly had to adjust to the way our customers wanted to do business with us, even though, yes, it would be easier to just have them put the credit card in and move on. We had to change the way we did business and focus on things like contracts 
contracts and even compliance that came with contracts and changing things, net payment terms. Some of our customers are on net 30, et cetera, or some customers only want to pay through wires, not credit cards or tiered pricing. When customers hit a certain threshold, a number of seats, they, they tiered pricing or seasonal pricing. We do a lot of business with retailers. They appreciate seasonal pricing because they don't need all those seats for the whole duration of the year. They, they only need them during the holiday season. So we had to make a lot of changes to how we did business. Okay. Can I jump in and ask, in terms of pricing, I often have founders ask me, I don't want to create a pricing model that disincentivizes users to actually use my product. So a usage-based pricing model. How do you think about pricing today? And what would your kind of advice around that be having gone through it? So pricing is a really difficult thing, right? It's something that we wrestled with in the earliest days of customer. We wanted to be innovative. We thought innovative pricing would be very important to us. We quickly learned as we started talking to customers that they didn't want innovative pricing. They wanted repeatable, consistent pricing that mapped to the budget they already had in place. Now, as we are going mid-market and above, we're mostly replacing existing solutions, whether it be Zendesk or Salesforce. So they already had a budget in place. So they, they just said, hey, uh, we have X amount allocated for a solution. Your solution is better. It's robust. It does more, but this is the budget that we have. So they wanted a pricing model that frankly mapped to the way they're accustomed to doing business. It was highly predictable. So while we wanted to think about doing a consumption model here at, at customer, because we thought that was innovative, we realized our customers didn't want didn't want a consumption model. And frankly, what we have today is, is a pretty standard model. We have several pricing tiers of uh, different depths of functionality, and then people pay per monthly agent on an annualized basis. So it's a pretty standard model that users are familiar with or our customers are familiar with. And frankly, it's worked for us. We, pricing has not been a challenge for us. If anything, we're getting better at driving our ASP up quarter over quarter. The last three quarters, it's gone up significantly each and every quarter. And we're doing that by adding more and more capabilities into our highest level tiers. In this case, for us, it's ultimate. And frankly, we've started to roll out additional capabilities. We've rolled out our telephony solution that uh, our customers have had an incredibly high take rate on. We rolled it out last quarter and about 50% of our Q3 customers have adopted it already. So we're seeing customers are appreciating the more value we're able to provide and frankly are willing to pay for it. Can I ask, uh, in terms of the, the mid-market segment that you kind of really hone in on and do so well at, how do you think about the often cited terminology of no man's land in SaaS pricing? And is that something you'd strongly disagree with, having lived through this and scaled through this today? Yeah, so look, regarding no man's land, I actually think that 10K and ACV is where we see our growth business. So we have two parts. We have our enterprise business and our growth business. And the growth business is for deals that are closer to 10K and ACV, right? And we want to take them. We're seeing lots of inbound interest from customers who don't need hundreds and hundreds of agents who really appreciate what our solution offers them and they see the value in it and we don't want to turn them away and we also see that many of them start on the 5 to 10 to 15 seat size but have quickly expanded and grown. We've had really amazing success on that so we don't want to turn them away. So actually we've seen a lot of success in the 10K and ACB range around our growth deals and the expansion that's followed that up. So for us it's not no man's land. It's, it's been a great place to play. Our AACB is definitely higher than that but it's been a great place for us to play, acquire newer customers, and watch them expand with us. And then a subsequent question I had is, you mentioned the multi-year deal element earlier on. How do you think about multi-year deals? Often if they're kind of not paid up front, it's just shifting the follow-up, I always think, from kind of customer success to finance departments. How do you think about that and the importance of them for early-stage companies? Well, I mean, they're, they're certainly helpful in that most contracted guaranteed revenue, right? So, you know, the TCV is, of course, a, a great thing to have, right? But for us, it's been beneficial in, in several ways. One, it certainly helps our economics look strong. We, we know X amount of revenue will continue on th through those durations of the contract. And it's frankly helped us. We have virtually no churn here at Customer, which I'm really proud of. Really, like, no churn, which, which is just amazing for our maturity level at this point in time. And certainly, multi-year contracts help. I, I do think the reason we have virtually no churn is because we've got an uh, amazing product 
product and amazing team supporting that product. But yes, I mean, if you if you do have a multi-year contract, it's kind of hard to turn on that. So I get you. I do want to kind of extrapolate one level higher though and discuss the landscape and the competition. You mentioned some of the players that you're replacing there, Salesforce, Zendesk. I'm intrigued. Taking it from the very top, being in the space you are, how do you think about how a startup can take on such industry leaders, as you said there, both in terms of the public companies that you take on? Sure. So look, my belief is that once a decade, all products need to be reinvented. There's just the world changes so much. If you could see me, I'd be holding up my iPhone and tell you, this is 10 years old. It's actually 11 years old now, but it's 10 years old. And the iPhone was created before Zendesk existed, as an example, right? The world communicated in a very different way a decade ago. We weren't texting. There was no Facebook Messenger, et cetera, et cetera. So changing landscape dictates that you need products to be nimble and agile around it. And frankly, sometimes it's really hard to change an existing product to adapt to the new landscape. Secondly, technology improves, right? Technology improves on an incredibly rapid rate. And tooling that exists today is radically different than a decade ago, right? Whether it be all of the great stuff in cloud computing at AWS, or whether it be things that are available from an intelligence perspective. A decade ago, you needed an army of data scientists. Now there's lots of great services you could use for ML and AI and natural language sentiment, natural language processing and sentiment analysis. So we, we are able to leverage all that. We're also able to leverage things that, that improve performance. So the uh, the cost for running our services. When we ran a Sicily, we were Ruby on Rails, and it was very expensive to operate because Ruby on Rails, while it was a great language for building code rapidly, it wasn't very efficient at processing those requests. Well, now we're on Node.js, and that's far, far more efficient. You know, orders of magnitude more efficient. So improving tech has really helped a lot. I would also tell you that building a better product and taking care of your customers is critically important. Here at Customers, we have one of our core values. We call it customer first. Always go above and beyond. And it's something that we focus on that we instill in our team, we instill in our company, and we still in how we build and support customers, and something that's very much helped a lot. I do want to dive in on one element. You mentioned that the sure. element of data. We had Phil Libin, formerly of Evernote and now of Turtles AI, on the show recently, and he said the theory that you need a lot of data to take on incumbents is basically based on lazy assumptions, therefore negating the incumbency advantage. Would you agree with him from this perspective on the data element? You have to have data. You can't run a business without it. As we're maturing, I'm constantly looking at new data that I never saw before, trying to figure out how I should be studying the business, where we should be improving, where we should be investing, where we need to correct things. So much of the point that I'm spinning up a team to help me with that, right? As we head into 2019 and we're really focusing on operationalizing our business and growing rapidly, data is key for me, right? You need quantitative and you need qualitative, right? So talking to customers is also a different form of data, right? It's not as numbers driven, but talking to customers is, is a really important piece of data for us, understanding what they need, right? Some of these stories just can't be quantified. Managing to metrics. So we mentioned the sales Salesforce v2 mom process earlier and, and our version of it, which is our custies. Well, that's even a part of data, right? That's our alignment process around the data, right? The goals we've set for ourselves, whether they be revenue goals to customer success metrics, all of that is a component part of the data, everybody aligning around the data and measuring and checking ourselves against that data. So yeah, critically important. I do have to ask, you mentioned there about how the data affects how you think about kind of operationally scaling in 2019. How do you think about when is the right time to really pour fuel on the fire, so to speak, when scaling? a company. And what are those leading indicators which give you the confidence that now is that time? I think in order to decide when you want to pour fuel in the fire, you need to know that your machine is running, right? You need to know that you have a product that customers love, a product that your sales and marketing team is able to sell in a repeatable fashion, a product that you don't have churn against. Here at Customer, 2018 was all about proving the business. Can, do we have a product that people love? Can we sell it? Does it scale? Does it work? Is it repeatable? And the answer to all those was yes. So we're now actually entering 2019 in the mode where we're very much pouring a, a lot of that proverbial fuel on the fire to the point that we'll pretty much 
double our teammates here at customer. We call it the crew. We'll double our teammates in the next two quarters. So yeah, we're very much pouring fuel on the fire. We're seeing a lot, a lot of aspects of the business really starting to work and take off. And now is the time to kind of get into that hyper growth mode. And, and we're just beginning that journey. I'm too intrigued not to ask before we move into the quick fire. You said about kind of almost doubling the team there. Are you concerned slash thinking heavily about how to retain a really kind of nimble startup culture with the team doubling in such a short space of time? Yeah, no, culture is key. Culture is something that's very important, something we think about. We have quarterly exec offsites. It's always one of the most interesting topics that we spend just so much time figuring out on. We're always thinking of different ways to enhance and still improve our culture and, and generate the best that we can. And our teammates are everything to us. If we do not have teammates that enjoy coming to work every day, enjoying spending time with one another, are subscribed to the vision and the beliefs of what we have here, you know, we won't build that great company that we aspire to, to do. So culture is something that's very, very heavily focused on. There's probably not a day that goes by that we're not thinking about how we can optimize our culture, how we can instill those startup core values, but yet at the same time, be that large company that we aspire to be and support these large customer accounts that we're getting. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to move into my favorite though, being the quick fire. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts in 60 seconds or less per one. How does that sound? Uh, sure, love to. So when I spoke to Ed Sim, he told me he's so enjoyed watching you grow as a CEO. Where do you think you've grown the most and why? Oh, I would say certainly on the, on the leadership side. It's challenged me to become a better leader, a different leader. Leading an engineering team, which is generated on the past, is very different than leading a company. So it's definitely challenged me. I, I've grown as a person. I've grown as a leader. Secondly, what I'd say is fundraising. It, it's one of those things that I was uncertain how I would do it. I never led fundraising rounds in the past and had some concern, will I be able to do that effectively? Um, I think I've grown tremendously from a fundraising and working with the VC community. I spent a tremendous amount of time spending cycles with VCs, educating them, getting to understand what we're all about. Partially, it's to get them excited for future investments, but equally important is getting into their ecosystems and, and getting introductions into their companies and their portfolio companies. And, and that's been a, a great source of leads for us, frankly. No, for sure. I think VC is the untapped customer acquisition channel of the future. I would love to hear from Gary Bennett. Tell me about your first interaction with Mark Cuban. Uh, that's an interesting one. My first company, which was called eShare back in the mid-90s, we made large-scale chat rooms and message boards. And back in the mid-90s, we're calling maybe 96 at this point, 1996, we had a lot of the largest sites in, in the internet using us. Lycos, GeoCity, Star Media, i1. These were some of the biggest brands of the day. And we had our business was about making large-scale chat room software. Well, one of our earliest customers was a company called AudioNet. And it was a small company in, in the beginning. And what AudioNet was, was a website for rebroadcasting college sports, football, basketball, et cetera, college sports to people out there in the internet land. And they used uh, real audio, real networks to do that. And they coupled that with, they embedded that inside of my chat software, Chatware. And we were a small company. I was, we were a three-person company at the time. And AudioNet was equally small. And the founder of AudioNet is Mark Cuban. So Mark used to just always call up for tech support and we were helping him out. And well, anyway, fast forward, AudioNet became Broadcast.com. We rebranded it. And Broadcast.com, of course, was sold to Yahoo. And that's, I think, what's, what's helped some of Mark's recent financial success. <laughs> I love that story. Tell me, what would you most like to change in the world of SaaS today? So I actually think in today's day and age, it's becoming a, in some ways easier and in some ways harder for SaaS companies to get started. And I'd like to figure out how to make it easier for SaaS companies to get started, right? We're seeing a lot of challenges to build a company now. In some ways, it's harder, right? So take compliance as an example. Nowadays, you're a customer, we're focused on GDPR, HIPAA, SOC 2, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of compliances. And it takes a lot of time and money and effort, legal bills and, and consultants. And you know, I often ask myself, how would a new company without funding, without substantial funding ever get there, be able to 
focus and truly achieve that. And that's just one example, but I'd love to see it easier for people with great ideas with maybe slightly more limited funding or, or resourcing to be able to spin up in this world. And I do think it's getting harder. So I, I'd love to see how we can make that easier for people. And there's probably a bunch of companies out there that could help a lot. I couldn't agree with you more there. But I do want to finish today on what you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning. And it can be the beginning of your time with customer. It can be at the beginning of your time with your first company, as you said there, serving Mark Cuban. Oh, well, so let's take it from the customer perspective. So from the beginning of customer, I think I mentioned this a little earlier, but the thing that I would have done is I would have spun up key go-to-market hire sooner. Actually, probably almost right in the beginning. What I didn't realize is, yeah, it takes a long time to build a great platform and then a product on top of that platform. But it takes a long time to build a proper go-to-market machine too, right? You've got to find the right hires. Those hires have to build the right team. You've got to build the right processes. You've got to implement sales enablement. And I think if we had begun that journey a little bit sooner, we would probably be even bigger right now, right? So we would have been more efficient. And I think we would have gotten to market faster and probably even been a bigger company. So that's, that's probably the thing I would have done sooner is, is focus more heavily on building that go-to-market machine and the team around it long before we had the product, not as the product was getting ready, if that makes sense. It does, absolutely. But Brad, you know what a fan I am of the product. Thank you so much for joining me today. I had so many great things and I cannot wait to see the exciting times ahead. Oh, thanks so much. This was super fun. I really enjoyed it. What a huge pleasure it was to have Brad on the show there. And if you'd like to see more from him, you can follow him on Twitter at Brad Burnbaum. And I do want to say again, a huge thank you both to Gary Bennett and to Ed Sim at Boldstart for the fantastic questions they provided. That really did help me so much. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do that on Instagram at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. However, before we leave you today, if you regularly listen to podcasts, you've heard of Betterment. They're the smart way to manage your money. They use cutting edge technology to build you a personalized portfolio and provide you with fiduciary financial advice for one low transparent fee. But did you know that they can also provide your company with your 401k plan? We all know that choosing a 401k for your company can be a time-consuming and confusing process. With Betterment, it doesn't have to be though. Betterment for Business is a turnkey 401k solution that offers ease of use, personalized financial advice, and very competitive pricing. And that's why the likes of Compass, Casper, and Harry's are just some of the companies that use Betterment's 401k to help further their employees' financial wellness. And you can find out more at betterment.com slash Sasta. That's betterment.com slash Sasta. And another incredible service is reviews.io, the first and only review platform to offer a truly unified Salesforce customer feedback management experience, enabling your business to save both time and money while monitoring and improving customer service and revenue. In addition to Salesforce integration, reviews.io also announces competitor analysis. This powerful tool gives businesses updated review scores and history for their chosen competitors, allowing them to spot trends in customer sentiment and take really swift action. And collecting reviews for your business with Reviews.io, a Google licensed review partner, improves online visibility, click-through rates, and conversion by introducing star ratings across paid and organic Google search results. And even better, Reviews.io integrates with over 30 online platforms. For your free product demo, sign up now at Reviews.io or search for Reviews.io in the Salesforce app exchange. And listeners get a free 30-day trial by simply mentioning the podcast when they sign up. Finally, we all know as a founder or operator, your crucial job is people operations. That could be hiring execs, developing managers, retaining top talent, and building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies, helping the likes of Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure that 
top performers are happy. And check this out. Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive the offer. That's lattice.com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.